This is Confluence, where great ideas flow together. The podcast of the Graduate School of the University of Montana. I'm Ashby Kinch, Dean of the Graduate School. On Confluence, we travel down the tributaries of wisdom and beauty that enrich the soil of knowledge on our beautiful mountain campus. I've done so many bumblebee counts in my time, especially at Huckleberry Plots. I loved the complexities of bumblebees. We have 24 species of bumblebee in Montana, which is... 24. 24. The most of any other state. So there's so much diversity and there's just so fun to study. Huckleberries are the first spring bloom or one of the first ones. So right at the time that huckleberries are blooming, bumblebees are emerging from hibernation, which means for bumblebees, huckleberries are a critical source of food for them. You just heard the voice of Rebecca Brassfield, a student in UM's master's program in systems ecology, talking about bumblebees, who are central to her research in the ecosystem of the Rocky Mountain West. On Confluence, we like to highlight graduate student accomplishments. In anticipation of this year's GradCon, coming up Friday, February 24th, we celebrate Rebecca as winner of 2022's Best in Conference Award for Oral Presentation in a STEM Discipline. GradCon is hosted by UM's Graduate and Professional Student Association, providing an opportunity for graduate students to present their research and creative activity and compete for awards in five categories. With COVID restrictions lifted, we were able to meet in person in 2022, and we'll do so again in 2023. So come by the University Center on February 24th to have your gourd blown. Rebecca won her GradCon award for her presentation, Predicting Huckleberry Habitat Using Species Distribution Models. Her real research focus is the dynamic role played by bumblebees as pollinators. We talk about how her interest in bees evolved, their relationship to vibrant huckleberry crops, and her work with students and research faculty at Salish Kootenai College. Welcome to Confluence, where the river is always with us. So I had the great pleasure of watching your talk at GradCon, and congratulations on winning one of the GradCon awards this year. What was that experience like this year? Yeah, I also did GradCon in 2021. So in the kind of aftermath of COVID, everything was virtual. In kind of the same fashion as this year, I recorded a video of my presentation to submit to the judges. And that was the same thing that we did this year. And this year we got to actually present in person, which I prefer so much more. It's nice getting feedback from an audience. And, you know, when you're presenting, you're looking for like nods of acknowledgement and kind of that audience feedback on your speed or volume. And you don't get that over Zoom. So it's it was so much more fun this year to actually be able to chat with people and present in person. Yeah. And so that was in your session, which I was in. You had some lively uh, questioners. You had some high school students, which was kind of fun. They brought a totally different energy to the room. Um, what about the just atmosphere of the conference in general? Did you get to go to some other talks and, and engage with other graduate students? I wish I took the time to go to other talks. I did not have much time this semester, unfortunately. But it was really nice this year because I felt like people were so much more engaged and people were, you know, chatting with each other in between sessions and there were people congregating around food or drinks. And that was just, it was so nice to be in, 
kind of a conference atmosphere again and feel feel the community around those events because that's a really big part of presenting your research is that that connection afterwards. Absolutely, yeah, and such a key part of graduate student life in general, making those connections between and among departments. And so you, you've got kind of an interesting background. You studied biology in Nebraska. What brought you to UM? Why'd you apply to the systems ecology program here? Yeah, so I finished up school in Nebraska and was very eager to leave the Midwest. I'm from Colorado originally, went to Nebraska and just missed mountains and I missed outdoor activities and there's not a lot of mountains in Nebraska as you can imagine. So I moved to Idaho for work with the Forest Service and once that finished up, I was like, you know, I want to go on to grad school. UM is a couple of hours north of where I was living, so... I think I'm just going to move to Missoula. And I had driven through, I think, twice before I just picked up and moved and started applying. And it did take me a few years to actually get into the program. But I think those years were really important in honing in on what I actually wanted to study and what I wanted to do. Because I'm kind of a generalist. I just love all science. So it was nice to hone in on bumblebees and focus uh, what I wanted to research on for grad school, because I think that's so important is you spend two years of your life researching something, you might as well enjoy it. Yeah, right? and it better be something you're really you know invested in and have a passion for. So the bumblebee thing came before applying. Where did that come from, from your background and interests? Yeah, I'm a botanist by trade. I've always loved plants. And so working for the Forest Service, they hired me as a wildlife technician, but what they wanted was my plant expertise. And so I kind of grew to love um, the not wildlife side of things, that plants were so applicable everywhere, and I could just take that wherever I wanted to go. And they started a pollinator survey while I was working there. And so we were capturing bees on flowers, and I was identifying the flowers, and then we'd send the bees off. But I saw a job posting for just a a field manager for Salish Kootenai College. And so I applied for that job. They wanted skills and experience with plants because that's so important for pollinators, right? You need to understand the plants before you get the pollinators. So they took me on as a field manager and I absolutely fell in love with the system. I loved the complexities of bumblebees. We have 24 species of bumblebee in Montana, which is- 24. 24, the most of any other state. So- there's so much diversity, and they're, they're just so fun to study. What are they specializing in, bumblebees, that creates that 24-niche uh, you know, spread? That's a great question, and that's kind of what I'm studying. So bumblebees have three different face shapes. So they have a short cheek, a medium cheek, and a long cheek. And that basically determines what kind of flowers they can pollinate. So a short cheek bee can only pollinate flowers that have a short Uh, corolla length or basically how far they can reach to get to the nectar so short cheek bees specialize on shorter flowers long cheek bees long flowers and there's a lot of kind of intermingling between those yeah and i'm guessing the long ones can go short but the short ones can't go long and so they have to be really good uh, in that niche in order to out compete exactly and for the most part they're generalists they kind of pollinate what they need to pollinate wherever it's accessible But my research is specifically studying how they're acquiring the nutrients that they need. So do they specialize on one plant because it contains a specific element that they might need? Or are they just kind of pollinating 
just to get pollen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we're not going to be heading toward brass fields, bees, in the way that Darwin's finches became a kind of model because it's not that hyper-specialized where the beak right. shape and everything determines everything about the outcome. They're still going to always be cross-pollinating at some level. Yeah, I used the metaphor cross-pollinating. <laughs> it was good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there are... Um, there are distinct species, and actually my focus species was just listed as two different species. Mm. So I was studying what I thought was Bombus bifarius, and they split it into two species, Bombus vancouverensis and then Bombus bifarius. Mm. So they're still distinct species amongst the bumblebees, but they're so generalized in a sense that they just kind of intermingle and they have habitats you know there's some species that are at higher altitudes there's some species that are only found in prairies you know they do still inhabit their niches but I I would feel comfortable saying they're pretty generalized yeah I mean speciation itself is kind of a funky science anyway right because there are these gray areas and scientific communities will justly debate you know the boundaries but but speciation for the kind of work you do is helping you identify specific effects that a a group of pollinators in one particular bioregion the reciprocal effect they have on the plants that they're pollinating yeah and there's there's kind of a scientific consensus that pollinators are good and so in our systems up here this is kind of highlighted with huckleberries where without pollination you don't get berries And we know this because huckleberries are very closely related to blueberries. So when blueberry crops are excluded from pollination, they produce smaller berries, fewer berries, and less viable seeds. And we're seeing similar things in huckleberry systems where without bumblebees specifically or bees that do something called buzz pollination, you don't get berries. So they have direct impacts, especially up here when we look at you know, we don't we don't see the early stages of huckleberries. We don't see the flowers, but we know the impacts of the flowers, which are those berries later in the season. Bears use them. We love to eat them. We Birds. Do. I mean, huckleberries as a species are also, they're called keystone species. So they have impacts on many other organisms. Yeah. And, and, and bumblebees I'm, are kind of that first step to... They're before, right? They're the step before that we pay, maybe pay less attention to. Yeah. And so huckleberries, since you've now brought us to the huckleberries, we should talk huckleberries. Of course, anyone who's listening and is from Montana knows how important they are, but it's a distinct and very interesting species, right? It's hard. It, it's still impossible or has not been artificially grown, right? So unlike blueberries, um, they're hard to replicate. Why is that? And what's, what's unique about the biology that makes it distinct in this area? You know, I think one of the reasons why they haven't been cultivated is because they have a very specific habitat type, and we haven't quite determined what that habitat type is. Mm. We know they really like acidic soils. We know they like wet soils. At high elevations, they're going to be impacted by snowpack and snow levels later in the season, especially as that melts and they're looking for spring blooms. They also reproduce primarily rhizomally, which means that they shoot off clones in the area that they're in. So they have to be present first before distributing, Mm. which kind of makes that cultivation difficult unless you're pulling it directly from the clone of a plant. 
And even then, I just don't think we've been very successful in understanding how to grow them from seed. So they have to be kind of transplanted. Mm. And the seeds are the seeds are also kind of interesting because they're tricky to germinate. They're odd seeds. They don't germinate very quickly or very readily. And you would think that that's their primary mode of distribution is, you know, after bears eat them, right. you know, they, they deposit them elsewhere. Else and, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And those just don't seem to take root as much. And, and that is interesting because you see patches. They are intense and they're very interconnected when you find a good patch out there in the wild. You didn't mention aspect or sun exposure, but that's got to be a factor too, right? And, and what they like. So... When I was designing the species distribution model that I made, I was going to include aspect in the model, but aspect is really a proxy for a measure of how much moisture is in the soil. Got it. So a northern exposure is going to have inherently more soil moisture than a southern exposure that gets more sun. Because it's trapping that soil and it's not going to evaporate. So I included a measure of soil moisture in the model Um, unfortunately that data was very coarse. So it was from the USDA soil data Mm. service and you can pull that data and it's free to access. People can use it, but it's, it's kind of estimations and interpolated values. So they're not very specific. And that ended up not being a great measure of where huckleberries were and that isn't to say that it's not because it very well could be and it's just the data that i used for that a little noisy Mm -hmm. yeah relative to a direct measure so how how much have you have you done work where you've set plots up and done direct measures bumblebee counts that kind of thing i've done so many bumblebee counts in my time especially at huckleberry plots Uh, huckleberries are the first spring bloom or one of the first ones so Right at the time that huckleberries are blooming, bumblebees are emerging from hibernation, which means for bumblebees, huckleberries are a critical source of food for them. It's, you know, the first source of pollen. It's the first source of nectar after they wake up from hibernation and they need those renewed energy sources. So we've done all kinds of bumblebee captures and in huckleberry plots, that's pretty much the only thing that they're on is you just capture bumblebee after bumblebee on huckleberry. And there's a few other species flowering. So I'm not going to say that it's exclusive uh, too, right, right? But it seems like there's a heavy concentration mm-hmm. there. That's so interesting in the in the age of global warming to think about the queuing there, the cross queuing. So their hibernation cues aren't related to huckleberries; it's corollary rather than a direct causation. Right, and that's uh, called a phenological mismatch. Is when there may be a potential mismatch in the timing of when bumblebees emerge and huckleberries flower and that applies to all sorts of organisms from the timing of bird migration to the timing of leafing out for trees Um, there's this kind of transition especially as we enter an age of warming springs and changing in the timing of our seasons there may be a time when bumblebees are emerging later than flowers or flowers are blooming later than bees need. Mm. And that hasn't been totally studied yet because we're still understanding what influences those two cues. Is it right. temperature? Is it sunlight? Is it snowmelt? 
it could be any one of those things. Yeah. So. But we're pretty sure they're not cueing each other, right. but they're picking up cues from the same ecosystem. And so, so maybe they'll just adjust that matching over, over course of time. Right. Lots of people here at UM are studying different aspects of that, right? So Scott Mills's lab is looking at things like ptarmigan uh, when their uh, feathers change based on the snowpack. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's nothing like that quite yet for this area. Plus, it's just uh, massively widely distributed. It would be kind of hard to study. Yeah, and I would, I would love to do that research. We have the the times of when we first see huckleberries bloom. Uh, Salish Kootenai College has been doing this research into phenology since 2015 when they started putting out trail cameras facing huckleberry plants, and they took pictures of the huckleberry plant Mm. at 8 a.m. and then probably 4 p.m. early in the season to determine when the first date was that they leafed out, that they got their first blooms, that they got their first berries, that whole sequence of events they have pictures of. And so they have really good data going back that far. And I would love to do that research kind of diving more into what causes those timings. Yeah, that's fantastic. SKC, shout out to them. I also wanted to talk about that a little bit. We have this ongoing and developing relationship. So for listeners who aren't familiar, this is a four-year tribal college um, that that is offering a expanding array of degrees. They're growing really actively and doing incredible science research, often grounded in tribal values, grounded in tribal traditions and histories. And that camera study that you're talking about strikes me as just so perfectly tuned to a tribal perspective, right? Because, of course, uh, the Salish and Kootenays and Kalispe people have been doing that for centuries going back, paying attention to the signs on the land. And so that study sounds creative and innovative, but in a way it's kind of building off of deep in indigenous tradition. Absolutely. And I, working for SKC, I really fell in love with this holistic approach to science and growing up in Western science, there's this uh, no nonsense, you keep things serious, you stay impartial as a scientist. And going from that into the tribal and indigenous values that uh, kind of inform what SKC does is a really beautiful interaction of all seasons and timings and uh, most importantly, humans interwovenness with that process. And yeah. I learned that I learned so much through my time and still working there. I've just learned so much about how those values are very distinct between Western science and indigenous science. But maybe growing together. And, that's, and I think that's what, what I love, you know, to hear about young scientists working from the beginning and having that in mind that it's important to grow those models back together since you've been a graduate student, you've done some work up there as well, mentoring undergraduate students, I think it was? Yes, I've been involved with uh, National Science Foundation Research Experience for Undergrads. That was what I was originally hired to do, was be a field manager for their REU each summer. And I fell in love with the process. I love working with undergrad students on the process of science and understanding how to ask research questions, what makes a good research question, uh, what is doable in a summer, what is something that... What's practical, what can you kind of say? I've got this limited amount of time, what can I accomplish? 
Exactly. Yeah. And an undergraduate needs that kind of mentorship, right? Because it's so science is such a big intimidating thing, but you're trying to help them break it into a manageable thing that they can accomplish in a shorter space of time. Exactly. And I, when I first got into science, I fell in love with it because I realized that this was the place where I could ask all the questions I wanted. And I had a professor at the time who really encouraged me to ask all of those questions. And up until that point, nobody had encouraged me to do that within my science classes. It was kind of a, here's the lab, do the lab, turn the lab in. But I never understood the process. And so once I did, I was, I was hooked. I just love the the fundamental part of science, which is just curiosity and examining what you don't know and yeah, just experiencing things, I guess. And, and this, this is hitting on so many things that are so important to this podcast and what we like to elevate, um, you know, mentor relationships and how, how important it is for a mentor to open up a new avenue for an undergraduate. And then in your case, to turn around and give back. Like so many of our graduate students on campus do that. You know, they run labs and they recruit those undergraduate students and they play that really important role in the middle between the research faculty and the undergrad to kind of translate that experience of science down into the, the actual activity, the thing itself, and to keep that curiosity rolling. So what's next? I know you're close to finishing. So you have the summer, you're going to be working on some research and then finishing in the fall. Where are you headed after that? Yeah, this grad con is one of my two grad cons where I made my own model. And I've had one modeling class and I did all of my models based on independent questions and interests. And so I absolutely fell in love with the process of modeling and especially ecological modeling. I just think it's such a powerful tool that if we can practice harnessing that, we can inform so much science. So I would love to get into the field of ecological modeling and I would love to do that at UM or with private companies that are looking to do that for conservation reasons or, you know, to inform larger scientific questions. That's really, I think, where my passion is moving. And is that more graduate education or is that just hanging out a shingle and starting to work as a consultant or work as a researcher on existing projects? I would love to get a PhD. I've always wanted to be a doctor for whatever reason. So I would love to continue my education, but I think I need a break after grad school to take some time off and reorient myself and just get some time to once again, kind of hone in on what my interests are within modeling now, because I've changed a couple of times through my career. So honing in on what I'd like to model specifically. Yeah. Well, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Science will be with us, right? You can go break away and then you can kind of find your way back when it's time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us on Confluence, Rebecca. Yeah. Thank you for having me. If you like what you've heard, you've got Kate Lloyd to thank. She's a student in our MFA program in media arts. Her deft ear and keen editing touch have created the sonic landscape through which you're floating. We'd like to thank UM's College of Arts and Media for providing studio space and talent to support this production. Confluence is brought to you by the Graduate School of the University of Montana. Innovation, imagination, intellect to serve the state, the region, and the world. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google by searching Confluence University of Montana. 
or click a link at the Confluence website, www.umt.edu grad. On the Telling Our Story tab, you'll find podcasts, videos, and other media that help us share with the world the groundbreaking research and creativity happening at the University of Montana. Enjoy the float. From Pride and Prejudice.